Therapy Podcast. My name is Jenny Helms and I'm your host. Today we are talking all about trauma, attachment, and substance abuse with my wonderful friend and colleague Tracy Smith. And it is such an amazing episode. We go into all different details about how trauma, attachment, and substance abuse are intertwined. And I'm probably going to go back and listen to this one myself because there were just, just so many good little nuggets in here. I'm also excited to tell you guys about Soma Recovery, which is an integrative therapy center that treats both eating disorders and it also works with the body piece of, of trauma therapy work. So our hope is to collaborate with other therapists in the community and to provide the body trauma therapy that Vander Kolk talks about in his book, The Body Keeps the Score. We also talk about this book in our podcast towards the end. So it's one of my favorite books that I would recommend. Um, I think Vander Kolk is amazing. And, you know, to be completely honest, I haven't fully read that book from front page to back page, and it's on my to-do list. But I have attended some a conference that Vander Kolk held all about what he talked about in that book. And it was very much a game changer for me. So anyway, I'm really excited to be able to provide some yoga instructors and massage therapists and other body workers that can help clients work on the body trauma piece as well, and to provide higher levels of care for eating disorders in Wichita. So I could probably go on and talk for another 20 minutes about this program, but I want to go ahead and get into the show so you guys can hear what you came to hear. And here we go. Um, yeah, so we're just going to head right into it. Normally I would talk a little bit more, but we are a little bit on a time crunch. So just, we'll start with the first four and then go from there. Okay. So what did you want to be when you grew up? So I was thinking about that and I even checked with my mom. I'm like, did I block something out? Um, I always wanted to be a mom. Um, that was the thing I wanted when I was growing up, but in kind of looking back, she helped me realize that I was always helping people everywhere I went. Mm -hmm. If someone had problem with their boyfriend or their mother or financial problem, or they just needed some help, Mm -hmm. um, that would become my focus. And I I was always helping people. So I think it was practicing for a long time and it kind of led into being a therapist. You were a yeah. natural helper. I guess so. That's neat. Yeah. That's cool. I was not a natural helper when I was a kid. <laughs> so I like right. to hear people's stories. But yeah, I've heard a lot of people say that they did know when they were little, which is pretty cool. I think that's yeah. a neat experience that you're able to just kind of grow into that role that was already natural for you. Yeah. Because I really didn't know mm-hmm. that particularly I would be a therapist, but... I was always interested in, in helping people. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. And what has been your, what I call your worst or most learning moment in therapy so far? That question is so difficult for me. Um, I think that just whenever any of my clients are, um, really in some kind of danger, I perceive that there's danger. I start to really make it about me (laughs) and I'm having to learn that, you know, um, they have choices and it's not all about me. 
and um, it's not necessarily something I've done or not done that's dependent on their success or their failure. And also, I think the second thing that's been a real learning experience for me is just to kind of calm down sometimes when I get a little super zealous about trying to sort of push someone into having some insight Mm -hmm. and um, let it be their journey um, and just not be pushy about it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's been a, that's been something I've been growing with as well as a clinician and therapist. And, um, I think I shared in one of the podcasts earlier that, yeah, I, I was even called out during supervision when we were, (laughs) we both are in the same cohort for friends, uh, university MFT program. Um, but yeah, I was called out in supervision for doing some of that. So yeah, I can relate, I can relate to that. And now I want you to brag a little bit on yourself for a minute. Um, oh what have been some of your best moments in therapy? Yeah, gosh, there's so, so many moments. And I just realize, you know, it, it takes such bravery and courage to do the hard work in therapy. And so there, it's, it's hard to boil that down also to, to particular moments. I think the times that have felt the very best is when I've seen sustained change Mm-hmm. Um, I have a gentleman that I've been seeing for 13 months and he's coming up on his one year of sobriety wow. and just, um, journeying with him, lots of, um, lots of aha moments, but just such persistence and bravery and seeing him put everything that he's learned and how he's grown, put it all into practice and walk it out in everyday life. Yes. That's, that's, those are the best moments. Those are. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. And yeah, to see that, to see that progress and, um, yeah, I don't know. I definitely can relate with some of my clients with their journey and just being mm-hmm. able to see that they haven't acted out in several months and to even, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes I visually have them see it because I have them fill out an assessment when they come in and then they do it later on and right. put them side by side. And it's just like, mm, that's a good idea. Yeah. So yeah, it's great. It's good. Cause it's really, like you said, it's, it's their, it's their work. We can't really make them do anything. And so being mm-hmm. able to give them that credit and yeah, show them it's, that. it's hard work. <laughs> it is hard work. I know we're basically, we're like, I feel like sometimes I'm like, I know that I'm asking you to come in here and do some of the hardest, mm-hmm. most uncomfortable things um, right. that you'll do throughout your week, mm-hmm. right? And so, what an honor! <laughs> exactly. To even give us that opportunity. No kidding, a privilege yeah. for sure. And then, what's your spirit animal? Something a little bit more lighthearted. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. Um, I thought, gosh, I don't know, I don't know. So I took a quiz. You did. Did you want to know the results? Yes, I do. I'm an owl. You're an you know, that wouldn't surprise me. I can <laughs> yeah? see that. Yeah. I can totally so, see that. I'm an owl, I guess. That's great. But then I heard one of your podcasts and somebody said that they were an INFJ mm-hmm. and that was Panda. Mm-hmm. I'm also an INFJ, kind of one of those weirdos. So I don't know. I That's could so cool. be a panda too. That might be why we get along pretty well too, because I, I'm an ENFJ. Okay. And so I have, or at least we have, I feel like we have yes. some very big similarities so absolutely that's really cool I have to, you guys are even um you guys are a rare breed and that's good way. probably why I've always felt strange <laughs> like a weird <laughs> different <laughs> maybe 
<laughs> no, you guys are you guys are great. I mean, at least my type definitely thinks you're great. So well, thank you. Um. Well, cool. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. That's neat. So we're gonna go into our topic today, which is about substance abuse. You know how that's related to trauma and attachment, and I'm just curious what you think is the most under, misunderstood thing about trauma or substance abuse therapy? Um, what are mm. some of the things that you you feel are commonly misunderstood? Okay. Well, I think as far as um, in the realm of addiction, people um, sometimes mistake um, an addict's behavior as as that they're a bad person or of poor character um, or they don't want to change, just kind of kind of a loser, right. you know. Right. Um, and as far as um, trauma, I think it's important to remember that it's a real subjective experience and that, you know, any event that kind of overwhelms the nervous system and causes you to react differently in the future and sort of loads up um, sensations and thoughts and so forth um, can be traumatic, yes. and that 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 stuck trauma um, that's not processed in the brain is um, really part of what um, what people are trying to fix with an addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's not so much that the drug is the problem; it's more um, I think. Um, as far as addiction goes, the pre-existing vulnerabilities mm-hmm. that can bring about addiction, um, such as emotional isolation, powerlessness, stress. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they did those studies, the Rat Park studies, um, mm-hmm. which kind of kind of proved that point. They put a single rat, um, giving him access to uh, morphine, mm-hmm. and then they did it with a rat park, like families of Mm -hmm. rats. And the single guy drank 20 times more morphine than the rats in rat park who had, you know, that emotional isolation and the stress and everything that came with that caused the rat to drink more morphine. So there really is something about some of these pre-existing vulnerabilities um, that cause people to try to um, kind of... um, use drugs to, to tamp down the symptoms of their trauma. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's fascinating. I'd never heard of that study, but I, I remember a TED Talk mm-hmm. talking about how important connection was. And, and in my brain, it just it made sense, so I believed it. But I, I yeah. do love sometimes seeing those tangible yeah. studies, too. Which really um, brings us to the next point as far as attachment, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're such vulnerable, dependent creatures. Yes. Um, baby humans are, <laughs> right? Yes. Yes. And uh, we have we have natural chemicals that are um, that happen when we have good interaction with our caregivers. Those endorphins mm-hmm. and um, opiates kind of mimic that feeling for people who didn't have the good attachments and they're sort of looking for that good feeling of the endorphin uses the same receptors. Mm -hmm. And so, um, there's, there's a a quote in a book about, um, a a woman who took a, you know, shot up with heroin and said it felt like a warm hug. And there's a reason for that because Mm -hmm. 
the opiate is, is kind of giving the feeling of what she would have gotten in that real warm hug with her mom and what she's kind of searching for. Wow. Yeah. It's just powerful language even. And I've, yeah, it's, it's amazing how much I think we as humans, especially now with technology and everything Mm -hmm. else where we kind of don't realize how vulnerable and how much we actually need, you know, a secure attachment. I think it gets, it gets looked at, looked Mm -hmm. at as weak or, um, that, oh, we're just coddling our children or this or that. And, you know, again, in this technology age, people are being even more and more disconnected. Mm -hmm. Um, I love, I mean, I love technology. I think it can bring so many beautiful things into our world. Um, but yeah, that's interesting to Mm -hmm. see the connection piece of it likely in impacting, impacting people in the addiction world. I'm sure. sure. Um, I don't know if you would say that. Well, let me, let me phrase it this way. I feel like I see more and more addiction and maybe that's just my clinical lens, mm-hmm. but I feel like I see more and more of it, whether it's a substance abuse or oh, sure. you know, just being addicted to things and objects and phones, gratification <laughs> or, you know, mm-hmm. addicted to work and addicted to, yeah. you know, I think addiction is something that honestly, all of us humans have some experience with or can struggle with and on different levels. Mm-hmm. Um, all of us. And kind of on the spectrum, right? Yes. Um, where And some addictions are a little more socially acceptable than yes. others, yes. like workaholism, you know. Yes. Um, Eating for disorders sure. even. Mm-hmm. I talk about that. I think some right. of my clients, if they hadn't found the strategy of an eating disorder, probably would have found mm-hmm. other strategies. But I think some people choose. I'm not, you know, and again, there's, there's a lot of different factors that go into it. But one sure. of the components is that I think people feel a bit more... Um, powerful or socially acceptable if, if their mm-hmm. addiction is, you know, restricting or dieting, mm-hmm. right, or something that our culture glamorizes, right. or even exercise, right? Exercise addiction right. is a thing, and um, yeah. That's, Sometimes I even think about just overachieving in general. Yeah, oh so. man, oh man, that's been an addiction of mine for sure yeah. when I was younger, and you know, I still have to, you know, be very careful to monitor my own overachievingness. So, I hear you. I don't know if that's relatable. <laughs> it is totally relatable. <laughs> totally. So, <coughs> Excuse me. What are what do you think are some things that non-substance abuse specializing therapists or clinicians or just, you know, people in general um, don't really understand about clients that struggle with substance abuse or something mm-hmm. that they might miss because they're not they don't have as trained of an eye or as much experience working with those clients. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that m- most people, maybe someone who's not trained, wouldn't understand um, that that it isn't about bad character, that it's about pain. When when someone's sitting in front of me struggling with addiction, I see a hurt person, yes. not a bad person. Yeah. And um, so I think that's first and foremost um, something that's really important to realize. And also... That when we can heal that wound, uh, when when the client can go through the process of of being healed, then there won't be a need for the addiction. Right. Um, it's it's really just a maladaptive coping to to try to handle what they're going through. Um, and we know that when we have stuck traumas, it's very uncomfortable. 
Um, it creates bodily sensations, um, feelings, thoughts, um, triggers that can make daily life quite a struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just knowing that it, it's tied to pain um, and not, it's not just someone who can't kind of get it together. Right. Yeah. Or somebody simply making bad choices, right? Exactly. Um, even though it was interesting, do you do you follow juggling the Jenkins at all? No. It's like a mom who um, she's been through recovery and she's um, now sober, but she mm. talked about how she gets the question of you know isn't it just a choice? And mm. she did a little spiel the other day, and she was like, "Who cares?" Right. <laughs> she's like even if it is, you know, right? This is still right. such an important thing, and. I mean, we know it's more complex than that, but, you know, I think mm-hmm. at the end of the day, for people to be able to understand that regardless of where or what it's coming from, it, it's important, and these people are hurting, mm-hmm. right? Right, and it's really, it really, I believe it's tied to traumas and or attachment mm-hmm. problems. Well, and I guess, okay, so I'm, I'm going to veer off the questions a little bit instead okay. of some other ones, um, but from a family perspective, because I know you've worked a lot with the mm-hmm. families. Why do you think they are so resistant to seeing their loved one as hurt and that maybe, why do you think they, you know, choose to see it as more of a choice initially, mm-hmm. right? Or that's their gut instinct for some people is to see it as being more about their character or about, mm-hmm. you know, them being a loser or whatever. Like, right. why might that benefit them to do that? Well, first of all, I think that a lot of the behaviors that come with addiction, um, there's collateral damage. Um, and, and people are hurt. They're, they're genuinely hurt by, um, by their loved ones who are in addiction. You know, addiction can drive you to, um, lie and steal and (laughs) cheat and, and lots of things to be able to feed your addiction. So there's that. I think we know from a systemic point of view that, um, that, that the system has a problem. It's just, there isn't an identified patient, right? Mm -hmm. And, I think it feels easier to families to come in and go, hey, look, they're the one that's been acting out. Fix them. Fix Fix them. And then we'll be okay. And they just really are not, they're kind of oblivious to the fact um, that this is a systemic problem and that there is an interplay and a balance that's happened within that system, um, which involves their their behaviors too. And so that's a really challenging thing is to um, kind of walk delicately and, and show people, yes, you've been hurt, and here's how you're helping maintain this balance. We need a new balance. We need a new homeostasis. How do we work towards that? It involves change all the way around. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think sometimes it's hard for people, um, <laughs> well, it's hard for any family system to admit that you know, not only are they contributing to it, but they, it may actually be uncomfortable for them when their loved one starts to get better. Absolutely. I talk about, um, I talk about, uh, boundary flack a lot because, um, you know, in, in a, in a kind of a dysfunctional system like that, um, there's not generally good, healthy boundaries. And, um, so say one person in that system, um, begins to change and grow and they set healthy boundaries, there may be somebody else in that system that says, whoa, 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 go back to the way you were. This is how I know to do it. And I don't really like this new person who says no when they want to say no or who doesn't, you know, 
um, enable me or who doesn't, whatever the case may be. Right. 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 So, yeah, it can be hard to accept. We're finding a new normal. Yes. And um, we've used the behaviors that all of the family members have fallen into have served a purpose, right? Mm -hmm. They're not for nothing. They're really pretty incredible people, just like you talked about um, people with eating disorders and oh, look at what you found, you know, to use to cope and so forth. And it's the same with families. And so that's one of the things I try to do is to point out, well, look at you guys, you figured a way to make this work. And now some of those things, they're not working for you. Mm -hmm. So how can we kind of alter that, change it, get a new balance for you guys, a new way of being? Mm -hmm. And often they have to grow and become healthier too in that process. Absolutely. That's very uncomfortable. Right. So everybody's kind of used to what they're used to. Right. And it's changes hard. It requires a lot of hard work and intention. Yes. So, and that can be that can be a big surprising uh, thing to people who come in thinking, "Hey, fix my loved one," yes. to find out that there might be something they need to do as well. Well, and I, I think one of I almost made a Facebook post about this this week. One of my biggest frustrations with um, the family systems when they're not, you know. They come in, they have their kiddo come in, they're not really wanting to do as much family work, and then um, they'll ask me, what can I do? What can I do to help them? And it's almost like they're like, I want a book to read, I want um, instructions about right. how to parent, but I don't want to do therapy myself. I don't want to grow myself, right? And I, Because the biggest thing that I, I could tell them that they need to work on is they need to do their own work. Absolutely. They need to be in therapy themselves, either you know, individually, or at least doing the family work with their, their mm-hmm. kiddo on top of everything. And, um, they don't want to hear that. They no. want me to give them a book or a pill or something else, exactly. but they do not want to do They that don't want to hear the I'm words, like, focus on you. <laughs> yes. Focus on you and your journey exactly. in the ways that you don't realize you're unintentionally hurting right. or, mm-hmm. um, enabling or just, mm-hmm. you know, all the things that you see in your work, working with families. And sometimes there's a lot of pushback, because they're they're like you're kidding me, you you want me to change? Do you not see how they've hurt me? Right. And so there can be some resistance there because, and they might need to work through a little bit of that to kind of get to uh, the place where they can focus on their their part. Right. In that dynamic. Right. I I still to this day have this very and okay. I love you, mom. (laughs) She's an amazing human being who's grown a lot since this point. But there was a point when we were doing our family work and she looked at me one day and she looks, she says, I resent you. Like I Mm. resent you for making me do this work. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was, it was painful at that moment, but I just, it makes me so proud of her because I think she had to go there. She had Mm -hmm. to feel that she had to get to that. She had to feel that and at least be willing to say that. Kind of name it to tame it, huh? To, yes, to grow and to right. actually do the work. And at this point, she's, you know, one of my family members that I think has done the most work and the most growth, even though there was that moment in time where she's looking at me and she's like, I have to feel all this. You know, really in that mm-hmm. moment, it was like, I have to feel all this pain and you're making right. me actually face it. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, and I think, you know, again, she's an incredible, strong mm-hmm. woman. And I think I'm able to share that at this point because of that. But you know, I'm sure you've seen so many moments like that in the work you, I, I know I have and mm-hmm. in different ways, maybe not that blatant, Absolutely. but that was a blatant moment I remember having with my own mm-hmm. mom and, um, 
Yeah. Yeah, how hard this work is. Yeah, it was, it, it was, it became evident to me really early on being an addiction counselor before I was an MFT, um, that working with uh, family systems that had a loved one going through residential treatment for addiction was such um, beautiful golden ground to learn about therapy because um, these people are just experiencing so many different kind of hardships as a result of their addictions. I mean, relationship discord and financial problems and you name it, um, legal, all kinds of things. And, um, just in so much pain and yeah, I'm just pretty in awe of all the systems that go through the work needed to kind of, um, become healthy. Yeah, it does. Um, and I had I had a question around how do you approach family work with families? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you wanted to add to that because we've kind of yeah, been talking yeah. about it. <laughs> so um, I think that it does involve quite a bit of education and, and helping them understand how the brain holds trauma and what's going on and what the addic- the purpose the addiction is serving mm-hmm. so that they can kind of come to an understanding that you know, my husband or my brother or my son, they're not just doing this to hurt me. They're not just making bad choices because they, that's what they want to do. So a lot of education around that. And then as far as the family system behaviors, really normalizing that and almost, like you said, praising them for finding a way to deal, (laughs) finding a way to cope and then just, you know, encouraging them that there can be a new, better way for them. Um, yeah, just kind of talking about helping them see the kind of compensatory behaviors that we family members kind of fall into when there's addiction present. Mm -hmm. And, um, or maybe we had them to begin with. I don't know. I think maybe I was kind of born into some of those ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes. yeah, just really um, trying to give them a lot of um, empathy, education, support, um, and a little push. Yeah, and a little push. <laughs> right? Sure. Right? That is for sure. Yeah. To, and I'm, st- I'm trying to learn this <laughs> as a person still. I'm starting to practice this more and more. But to celebrate all the successes, right, we tend to um, really zero in on where we think we've messed up, uh, where we didn't, you know, when is that time that I drank, you know, and, and I, just, I really screwed up again, right? So I kind of liken it to um, if I'm on a diet and I can't have any chocolate cake, Mm -hmm. and if I go 90 days and I don't have any chocolate cake at all, Mm -hmm. right? But on day 91, I eat the whole dang cake, right? Am I going to focus only on day 91? Mm -hmm. Or am I going to remember the 90 days that I did well? Mm -hmm. And so uh, a lot of... Um, you know, I'm trained in EMDR and so I like to use um, bilateral stimulation and positive state to help them really soak that in mm-hmm. um, and celebrate all of their successes along the way um, but also then 
just because I ate the whole cake on day 91, does that mean I needed a whole cake on 92, day 92, you know? And so just kind of acknowledging the struggles, affirming the pain, a lot of cheerleading, a lot of um, helping them see they feel so bad. There's just this horrible shame cycle that they get into. So just working a lot on helping them see that they are not bad. Yes, that they are not what they do. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, all of us humans can relate to shame, right? Feeling absolutely. Feeling shame in our lives. Right. Um, and yeah, I don't, I think, are you mm-hmm. a Brene Brown or Brene Brown? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Her work is oh, mm-hmm. life changing for me mm-hmm. um, as a human. And especially, I feel like it applies to addiction work and trauma and absolutely. attachment. And if you're human, you could use her work, basically. <laughs> right. So, exactly. Um, exactly. But yeah, she talks a lot about, you know, separating healthy guilt from mm-hmm. shame and that identifying with what you do. Like, I am this thing because I do it. Right. Um, I wonder what you think about this because I, I've always hated an AA world where people say I am an alcoholic. <laughs> right. I've always hated that because right. I felt like that just, it made them identify too much with mm-hmm. the alcohol mm-hmm. struggle um, and make that a part of their identity, which I know it's important that people own that part of them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like they're, <laughs> I think yeah. it's them trying to say, hey, this is how we own that part of us. And I think we can own that part mm-hmm. without identifying with it. Um, but I've always hated the I'm an alcoholic thing. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you have a different view on it. I don't like it either. Um, I really don't like it um, because, yes, I'm so much more than my mistakes, right? And um, I'm not my mistakes. The things... um, The things in therapy that I really can appreciate about AA and want to bring um, some of the attributes into therapy are I love that they have a... um, there's a focus on, on the spiritual aspect of things. And I, I do believe that God is the ultimate healer. And I, um, that's something that I, I want. I think God created us for connection with him and with each other. That's that connection piece again. And, um, so I like to bring that into therapy. I like to bring in the support aspect. I think a lot of people are successful in AA because there are other people there cheering them on and saying me too. And that's really, really important. And then there is that accountability piece. Um, But yeah, as far as I am, well, I'm Tracy, you're Jenny, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm more than some label. I don't think labels are so important. And I think that it, yeah, not, Hey, if it works for you, (laughs) that's okay. (laughs) You know, that's okay. Um, But yeah, Yeah. I I have struggled with that a bit too. Yeah. Well, and I had a a professor um, at one point talk about how they connected, you know, substance abuse recovery to grieving Mm. because you're grieving that identity, right? Mm. You're grieving the identity you were, um, that you did have. And Mm -hmm. so it's a a grieving process and then, you know, having to rediscover who you are, Mm -hmm. you know, life outside of. I think that's interesting because there's, there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of research that says that addiction is not just about the acquisition of the drug. It's about all the behaviors leading up to it as well. 
And so, yeah, you kind of get into those norms too. And this is how I function. This is my lifestyle. This is, you know, what I do. Yeah. And grieving that, you know, those parts of you, Mm -hmm. right? That you no longer um, are going to utilize in the ways that you Mm -hmm. were because now you're going to have different, hopefully different parts Mm -hmm. that will take over healthier parts. Um, Right. So it's important to find other things to sort of put in its place. Um, because it is kind of like kicking a coping leg out from underneath someone when you ask them to stop drinking or stop using. And so that's another aspect that's really important is we've got to have some other behaviors in there. Um, we need that metaphorical tool belt of, of behaviors and coping skills that we can go to and that can become automatic because we know that they will if we hang in there, right? Because we have incredible brains that are rewirable, that we can create new neural pathways um, by the repetition of our behaviors. And that's that's how addiction, you know, addiction, there's definitely neural pathways built around that. But we have incredible brains that can create new ones. Yes. So I'm eternally hopeful. Yes. Yeah, no, there's so much there. I was going to go in one direction, and I let that thought go. Because <laughs> I wanted to just soak in what you were saying. Um, yeah, and I, you know, with our brains, uh, you know, I think it is important to understand that we can rewire things, even mm-hmm. up into our 70s, some of the research. We have research mm-hmm. for that age group. Maybe we don't for the 80- or 90-year-olds, and they probably right. still can. But, right. you know, um, but yeah, I like I like to give that hope to my mm-hmm. clients because Absolutely. I think that's part of their process is even believing that it's something that's that possible, right? Possible. Right. Yeah. yeah right. And, then, and then going back to the piece where, you know, like you said, our clients wouldn't have their addiction or their eating disorder if it wasn't serving a, a purpose for them and if they didn't need it in mm-hmm. some way. Right. So you don't exactly. want to kick those legs from out from under them. We're not, you know, sometimes I've even said in therapy, I think it look, my clients usually look at me like, what? When I'm like, maybe you need this right now, right? Maybe you just need mm-hmm. to be doing what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. That's not me saying, hey, I want you to do this or we're not ever going to change it. Mm-hmm. But I want them to understand that, you know, that there is a part of them that needs to do it mm-hmm. um, and that it's serving a purpose and maybe even a protective purpose right? Um, for them. So we don't want to just take it away from them without giving them something else Mm -hmm. to hold on to or to help them through whatever it is that they're kind of protecting themselves from or um, needing to work through. Right. And that's a difficult situation when it's alcohol or opiates and your husband or wife is getting ready to leave you. And, um, you know, to be able to say, well, well, this is serving a purpose. Maybe you need to do this isn't, isn't usually in the vocabulary where there's substance abuse, right? Um, because we're too afraid of the collateral damage that it could cause. And it's, it feels so life and death sometimes. Um, do you think that could be bad though? Because, um, I, I agree with you that there's mm-hmm. such a severity to it. And, and some mm-hmm. of, with some of my clients, too, there's such a severity of, mm-hmm. of the medical consequences of their eating disorder. And I don't want that in, Like, for me, at least, I see it as, like, I don't want that anxiety to be leading the session because I think sometimes right. just simply saying, like, mm-hmm. it's almost like a strategic approach in a way. It's like, mm-hmm. you need, maybe you need this right now, that it kind right. of changes the dynamic for them to where they're 
they're able to see it differently and so work differently. I, I think the language that I tend to use when it comes to substance abuse is um, is is lapse and relapse, mm-hmm. um, and that a lapse number one doesn't have to be a relapse, right? So if I ate the whole cake on day ninety one, I don't have to on day ninety two. Mm-hmm. Right? right? So there's that difference. And also that it's all information. Mm-hmm. It's all information from us for us. What can we, instead of kicking ourselves, what can we learn from it? Yes. And so that's, that's an approach I try to take and normalize those bumps in the road. Mm-hmm. That there will, <laughs> there probably will be times where you won't do this perfectly. I don't do anything perfectly. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, there's always bumps and why should addiction be any different? Right. And, um, so, but you know, we're taught everything's feedback, right? And so mm-hmm. what can we gain from that? What can we learn from it? It can be, we can make something good from it. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, I think I, I love this work because of the challenges and how complicated it can be at times because right. I'm weird I'm weirdly into that stuff. I'm like, let yes, let's make the let's get into the complexities of it and mm-hmm. um where you know, I know we're talking about so many good things, but it's it's so case by case, you know. Absolutely. What what you do, how you approach it, um mm-hmm. how you approach the family system. That there's no one cookie cutter kind of response for all family systems or, or all people and that is true. Um but yeah, that's so good. I love the languaging that you use because it sounds like you do a great job of just like taking the shame mm. from that experience and, and yeah. helping them, you know, helping them do that for themselves. Yeah, and I want my clients to know that they don't have to be ashamed to come back. If, you know, if they, if they fall off the wagon and go on a bender for a week mm-hmm. and miss two appointments that um that they can still call me. Yes. Um so I, I I work really hard to try to let them know that that I have an understanding of how difficult this is and that um those can be learning experiences mm-hmm. and those don't define them. Right. So so that maybe they'll make that call. Right. Again. Right. And that they don't have to worry about coming into, you know, they're already trying to get healing, but, you know, I think sometimes people can unintentionally shame or be Mm -hmm. disappointed and and use that in in their attempts. It comes from a good place of wanting to help them, trying to motivate Mm -hmm. them or get them to have that tough love thing. Yeah, that tough love, right? But they don't realize that it's actually, you know, again, systemically feeding into the problem Mm -hmm. and part of the problem. And so, Yeah. yeah, I love that. It's tough, you know, it's that, I love, um, in life, there's, there's truth and there's grace, and I think both are important. Yes. So, it's finding that balance, right? 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 That, yes, yes. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah. Beautiful way of putting it. I love that. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the trauma piece, because you talk about how, how, how much trauma... And substance abuse almost are just like, you know, mm-hmm. they're one and the same in a, in a way where it's like whenever you're working with a person, you're working with mm-hmm. trauma. So tell me more about how you approach the trauma piece and how you see it, um, you know, how you see trauma in your clients or how you kind of 
Mm, what is what's the word I'm looking for? How you explain it to them? How I explain know, trauma you, to them? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm pretty visual, and I, I like to demonstrate. I definitely use some of Siegel stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, like to educate, you know, with my fist and, and explaining the brain. But then I will go a step further, and I. I act like I'm popping the amygdala out of my brain, right? <laughs> and I hold my index finger up and show them, okay, so here's here's the amygdala. Um, my fingernail is the amygdala, and that is the part of my brain that's kind of the smoke detector. It's in charge of of deciding whether something's a threat. Mm-hmm. And behind it sits a hippocampus, which is like the librarian of the brain. Mm-hmm. Well, the amygdala have to, has to kind of give the event a hashtag and send it back to the hippocampus so that it can be filed away right. in the brain. It's right. a long-term memory, right? And so we have events happening all of the time, and the amygdala's, you know, at work giving hashtags, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so I like to talk about when my granddaughter was born and I got to witness that. I am quite sure my amygdala was like, hashtag love, happiness, joy, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. Send it back to the hippocampus, and the hippocampus says, oh, I know where to file that. Mm-hmm. Filed it away. Mm-hmm. But when traumatic events happen to us, it's like the amygdala doesn't, can't make sense of it. Mm-hmm. It can't give it a hashtag. Mm-hmm. So it stays stuck in the limbic part of the brain. Mm-hmm. And that stuckness creates a lot of those unbearable symptoms um, that to us would be anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. um, those kinds of symptoms that we would see with anxiety and depression, um, negative beliefs, um, all kinds of uncomfortable bodily sensations, mm-hmm. okay? And so so it's stuck there. And all the while, new events are coming in all the time. Well, the amygdala can't tell time. Mm-hmm. Can't tell time. Mm-hmm. And it kind of categorizes things by what did it look like? What did it smell like? <laughs> what did it feel like? And so when another event comes in that looks like, smells like, sounds like, in some way that old trauma sitting there. It's like all of the emotions of that original trauma flood forward and dump on that current situation. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important that we get to those stuck traumas so that we can get them processed through and filed away and they're no longer causing you all of the pain and the symptoms that you're trying to get away from mm-hmm. and using maladaptive behaviors yes. to try to cope. Yes, to not feel that pain, to not feel those bodily sensations. Absolutely. Yeah. It's un- it's uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable. And we all, I mean, again, we all have trauma, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. have to look like a hurricane coming through our house. No. Or a parent's divorce necessarily, but anything that's stuck. Yeah. Well, and we know that there, you know, you could have one big singular event that causes PTSD and that could be that could be traumatic mm-hmm. or you could have you could grow up feeling criticized mm-hmm. and have more complex trauma that you know is stored in there there's so many ways and then there's the piece about the vulnerabilities that are there you know do do I have good attachment connection um, am I supported emotionally physically all of those things can really determine how we take in an event. So so two different people could have potentially the same event happen, um, and, and one, it might feel more traumatic to the other. One, it might overwhelm their, their nervous system, 
I know, as Bessel van, van der Kolk says, you know, and, and cause that system to be overwhelmed and create that stuck trauma. Yes. And um, one of the things that I've, I've been learning in therapy for myself is, is about the parenting or actually the parent's response sometimes to a kid's trauma. Right, so if a kid's going through trauma, the response of the people around them, even if they have support and love, mm -hmm. um, if they respond a certain way to yeah. it, that impacts how it's stored or not stored, or if yeah. it gets stuck or not, or can be traumatic in and of itself. The actual way that people respond to it, and so absolutely, that was something I think that was really interesting for me to pay more attention to because before I'd been paying attention to all those other pieces, and then mm -hmm. I was like. Wow, but this matters so much too. Like it how does. The family responds to and it. it's so highly influenced by whatever the the parents' experiences have been, yes. <laughs> and what you know what what their upbringing was like, what their attachment if did they have a secure attachment? Have they had trauma? Mm -hmm. And you know when a when a when a person has that stuck trauma, it really affects their their window of tolerance, their ability to tolerate emotions. Mm -hmm. And if they have a pretty small window of tolerance because of stuck trauma, that window is going to be pretty small for their child's emotions too. Yes. And they're not going to be able to tolerate it. And sometimes parents do things that are very dismissive, um, not meaning to, it's just that they, their window of tolerance can't handle it. And that's, so. that goes back to, you know, what we were discussing earlier, how important for the parents. They don't realize how much how important their work is because right. when they increase their window of tolerance, mm -hmm. you know, not only are they showing those behaviors and giving their, their kiddos the experience of that, like how, how is it to experience a human being who does this, right? Because mm -hmm. often these kiddos are growing up in, in environments where, like all of us, we all have our stuff, right? And the mm -hmm. parents have their stuff. Um, so they... You know, the parents want their kid to mature, out, outgrow them in a lot of ways and mature past <laughs> them. And I'm like, that's a really tricky thing to do because they have less developed brains than you do. Mm -hmm. um, and and brains that are it, modeled after theirs. Right. And they're, and they're modeled right, <laughs> right after your behaviors. And so it's like you're asking them to do something that is almost impossible. And mm -hmm. they still can. They can gain that sense of self. Mm -hmm. It is just all the more harder. Mm -hmm. Right? And some, some kiddos have to because of different reasons or parents inability for their own reasons right. too and um having empathy for that but um but yes if the parents can get that work you know mm -hmm. this is part of why that right. is so important to their kiddos and journey. to me that's a moment that we can celebrate in therapy and say this is cycle breaking stuff mm -hmm. this is what we're doing because that you know we've got the, the child and the parent and who knows how far up the family tree yes. um stuff has kind of rolled down that way and been modeled that way. Um, and then there's the, the aspect of trauma that is genetic. Yes. Right. We're so that, that opens, so that so opens a whole, a whole nother can of worms. But with epigenetics, we're seeing, you know, they did the studies on Holocaust survivors mm -hmm. and who had been through concentration camps and all of those things and experienced horrible traumas. And they're seeing the symptoms of those traumas in grandchildren yes. of those people who never experienced those events. Yes, like the, the biological symptoms where things were so, um, I don't know if this is the same study, but I, I, I was reading one about the cortisol levels where yeah. um, basically, you know, they'd had increased cortisol levels due to their traumas, mm -hmm. chronic trauma over yeah. time. 
and that changed their genes, and then they passed mm-hmm. it on to where these kiddos were already predisposed to having mm-hmm. high cortisol levels, and their body right. would feel like they were experiencing the chronic trauma of their ancestors, even though that trauma wasn't happening. Even in their even at at the similar age. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so it's, yes. It's yeah. So fascinating. It is fascinating. Yes, and to see the science because we all we like in our field. We kind of knew that for a while. We had people like mm-hmm. Bowen who were just like, duh, intergenerational transmission. Mm-hmm. But we didn't have the gen- genetic science right. to prove it. And now we have the hardcore science that says, yeah, this is a real thing. Like, we can, t- we can tangibly show you this. It's not just some weird I think, theory. I think that can be a really good in with clients, too, who are um, maybe those overachieving or perfectionistic type people who feel like I don't I don't want to I don't want to have any trauma I don't want to be a person with trauma that's that's bad no my family's good it's 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 all fine and so even to be able to bring that in and say who knows but maybe something (laughs) you know two generations whatever above you maybe there's something um Opens up. No control over, right? Right, right. That you had, <laughs> so it doesn't feel so like, oh, my family's bad or, or, or I'm whatever. Bad I'm, or, mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Um, it can kind of open a door for a conversation there. Yes, and I think to parents too, because I think when I'm an originally, I think if I were to just say out of the gate, you need therapy, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I think that would feel to them like, like, ugh, like that's right. a shame thing, or they feel like, oh, are you putting this on me, right? And I'm sure oh, that, that would sure. be frustrating, but yeah. we're not. This, this isn't about parent blaming or family blaming. No. This is just like, we have to look at the whole Fixing big the picture. system, right? Yeah, the yeah. context. There's so much that we inherit that we have no control over. It's not our fault, mm-hmm. but it is our responsibility Absolutely. at that point to do something about. And right. we can, which is cool. Right. Um, epigenetics, you know, it can, I think it's been so cool because I think it shows us how we can change if we inherited certain genetics, we can mm-hmm. change them and then pass on better genetics mm-hmm. to our generations. And you know, that's so cool. kind of relating that to kind of a, um, a spiritual aspect. Um, I was just listening to a Christian comedian that was talking about how our lives are much like the structure of comedy, which is there's a setup mm-hmm. and then there's a punchline. <laughs> okay. And in our lives, that setup is what have we received, right? What, mm-hmm. what did you receive genetically? What did you receive relationally? Um, what are the traumas that you have experienced? Um, what have you been, what has it taught you? What have you been practicing that you can use for your purpose? Mm-hmm. And he said one thing that I thought was so cool. He said, you know, sometimes... Your setbacks can be part of your setup. And the farther you're set back, it can be like a slingshot that's pulled back. <laughs> and then when it's let go, it reaches farther mm. than. And so I think that we're all kind of wounded healers, healers yeah. right? And I think about, gosh, the, the people that come in as clients and, and some of them that have had some pretty severe setbacks how far they might go and how much their stories can help heal other people um and so it's kind of cool to sit back and look at that big context too and um 
how the world can change based on the pain that we've endured. Yes. No, that's beautiful because I've never even thought about how to put that into a metaphor, but I've always mm-hmm. felt that the people who go through more and grow through it are just, they have something that other people don't, right? And I right. don't know how to describe that necessarily. Yeah. I don't know if there are words, but um, there's something very beautiful about it if they're mm-hmm. able to grow through it. And, right. Um, and giving and that be used. hope to people, yeah. yeah, who have been through so much and um, that that can be an asset, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I love the slingshot. And that is <laughs> yeah. really cool. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Very, very cool. I love that. Well, let's go into our final four. All right. Let's go ahead and, and talk about the one thing you wish... Well, I kind of frame this as the one thing, but what's one thing, <laughs> one thing that you wish you knew um, when you first started doing therapy? Can I do two? <laughs> yeah. Sure. All right. Um, I think that trauma therapy can take a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, I I went and became trained in EMDR, and I love it, and it definitely can speed up the process. Um, but even just getting someone ready for trauma therapy can that's where the time um, yes. has to go because we do have to increase that window of tolerance and we have to increase the ability to return to the window of tolerance if we get out of it and and there's a lot of work around that yes. um, personally I think um, I think I heard it but I think I didn't really realize how important it would be to have other therapists friends um, to talk to um, yes. that it's really, I feel so much better when I <laughs> can talk to other people who get it. Yes. So yeah, I think I wish I knew how important that was. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a good point because I, well, not only for like peer console, I think it's important that we're always growing and learning mm-hmm. and getting Absolutely. feedback, but, um, but you're right. Not everybody's a scuba diver in the ways that we are, or right. at least scuba dives the seas that we scuba dive. Um, and I appreciate, you know, my therapy friends. And, and mm-hmm. I think this is a shout out to therapists out there that it's important that we network and that we not for just the business purposes, like that's like a small, small portion mm-hmm. of it. It's more about our own ability to increase this work and love mm-hmm. it and enjoy it mm-hmm. and grow from each it other. It is wonderful, wonderful work and it can be hard. Yes. And so we need each other. Yeah. And weirdly we all chose it. So we got to look <laughs> at ourselves too. Why, right. why did we do this? Um, exactly. Yeah. No, we, we've got to, you know, kind of laugh at ourselves too, because we have our own quirks that draw us to this field as well. For sure. Um, just like any field. I think people make fun of our field in that way. Like they're like, Ooh, they all, I'm like, okay, you chose your field for a reason too. And the ghost you're running from. So <laughs> let's just keep it real. Yeah. Um, what is the best psych-related book for people in the field and then people outside of the field? Well, I have two books, um, and really I think they can be good for either, in or out, both of them. Okay. Um, you know, in grad school, what really propelled me towards trauma work was The Body Keeps the Score. Yes. Right? Yep. So, yep, yep. love that book. Um, and I think it was written for the layperson as well as the therapist. Um, but be prepared. It is, it is packed full. It is dense with information. And so it's not like an easy read, um, in that way. Such a good book though. And then, 
Uh, I really like the book In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by Gabor Mate. I've heard about that one. Yeah. I haven't read it yet, but yeah. I'm putting that on my list now. He does a really good job of kind of explaining a lot of the things we've talked about, and then he goes more into the brain science as far as um, chemicals and receptors and, and how all that ties to attachment and so forth. And, he, yeah, he, he says it well. Yeah, I've, so. I've listened to some of his... Um, his talks and mm-hmm. I've gotten a lot out of a lot of it. Like, I mean, I've gotten right. a lot out of just that. So I can imagine. That and, and a person who hasn't, um, you know, dealt with addiction in their family or doesn't have a firsthand experience of it. He tells a lot of stories. So mm-hmm. that's, that's nice. He balances all the intricate <laughs> knowledge he has with so, some interesting stories too. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And what's a favorite quote of yours or some of messaging or wording that's just really impacted yeah. you. So I remember something that I used to have on my um, whiteboard at Valley Hope a lot. Mm-hmm. And it was Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes me so happy. Yeah, and it was when we deny our stories, they define us. When we own our stories, we get to write the ending. So, and she has a lot of good quotes, you know, about it's only when we're brave enough to, you know, look into the darkness will we um, discover the power of our light. I love that one, too, um, when I think about the bravery that it takes. And then also, I like one by Nelson Mandela that says, may your choices reflect your hopes, not your fears. Mm. I think it's just so easy to live in fear and be sort of stuck. Right. And, and I kind of, the way that I frame it in my mind is, you know, acting from those fearful parts or those other parts of us, not our best self, but mm-hmm. our, our mm-hmm. parts, right? right. Exactly. And that aren't really us. And I love how that's framed because it's like, yes, we want to act from our healthy self mm-hmm. parts, not the exactly. unhealthy fears. Yeah. Because right? that can, I mean, we can lead lives based on fear. Oh, yes. Fear. <laughs> and, I mean, well, I'll not going to go into this fear, but I'm like our politics, you know, people can choose mm-hmm. their politics and how we run the system completely mm-hmm. based in fear. And yeah, yeah, we don't want to, it's not the healthy space to live from. For sure. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. And the last question is, what's the one question I didn't ask that isn't, that you felt would be important um, to share? The one thing we didn't cover that Gosh, I don't know. I just think it's important to remember that labels don't matter. Um, We don't have to have an identified patient, you know, kind of that systemic stuff we talked about. And that everything makes sense in context. Yes, I love that. (laughs) Right? I love it. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for letting me pick your brain. You're a wealth of knowledge Mm. and a peer of mine and a friend and... I just appreciate you. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks for having me.